BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Been waiting for this one for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. Every week I have a discussion about The Last Dance. I'm an obsessive Bull fan, and I've been pr- promising listeners that I get Craig Hodges on the show. And so here he is, the great Craig Hodges. Welcome to the show, Craig. Oh, man. I appreciate you, man. Thank God for you, man. And uh, just hope everybody's well during this period of time. And, you know, just look forward to coming out of this healthy and, you know, got a different mindset. Stay strong uh, in body and soul and mind. Absolutely. All right, Craig. uh, I met you right after you wrote your book. I came to, uh, Mm -hmm. I think it was your aunt's house uh, in the south suburbs. And uh, we were talking about your life. Uh, the two lanes of your life, I'll never forget it, the two lanes, uh, the basketball <laughs> lane and the black lane. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Right, right, uh, right. We, no we've, had, we've had a series of conversations on this uh, ever since. Uh, let's talk about both of those lanes uh, in, mm-hmm. uh, in connection to The Last Dance, the documentary, really the subject of the documentary, uh, which is the Chicago Bulls' great run for, in the 90s, and you were part of that. All right, let's start. Right. So tell folks a little bit about when you joined the Bulls, just put that in the perspective of your career. I, my, my memory is that it was 1988 or 89. Is that correct, Craig? Right, exactly. And, and uh, the Bulls, at, I was with Phoenix at the time, and Jerry Colangelo, who grew up in my hometown, Chicago Heights, he was the president and general manager, and he brought me in and told me that the Bulls wanted to bring me in. And he wanted me to go and have a nice, you know, have a good time. So he gave me a chance to come home and play. And when I got here, it was one of those things where, you know, the media was talking about how Michael needed help. And I had played had good runs against the Bulls in the playoffs when I was with Milwaukee. So I had some type of, you know, uh, understanding and familiarity with the organization. But to get here and then to see, you know, Michael and his entourage and, and his handlers and that kind of thing, but also – having come in with six years of previous uh, experience in the league. So I wasn't a rookie. I wasn't a, a newcomer to – I was a veteran in the league, so I wasn't really enamored with, you know, the the trappings of uh, what professional sports could bring at that point in my career. You know, maybe if I would have been coming here in my second or third year, it might have been different. But coming in as a veteran, I wasn't really – I wasn't really shaken by any of the things that were going on. So I was ready to come in and do what we did, and that's won a championship. So that first year was the year that the Bulls actually made the run, uh, and that's when Jordan hit the shot in Cleveland, right? 1989? Exactly. All exactly. Right. And, and, and that was big fun, man. Big fun. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that the, you know, leading up to that play, if you go back and you look at the uh, video, Craig Elo is taking the ball out of bounds, and I'm jumping up and down trying to stop his uh, pass on line. And he catches me right while I'm in midair, and I'm about to come down. He throws the ball and takes off past me. And by the time I hit the ground, he's already gone, and he lays the ball up to put them up. And I'm over there kicking myself in the back and all of this, and MJ is like, he's patting me on the leg. Hodge, I got this. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, man, don't worry about it. I got this. So when he told me, 
he was going to hit the shot before he hit the shot. So that's that, you know, that's kudos to the brother. All right. Now let's talk about that play since you, you mentioned it's one of my favorite plays and I'm going to go on my mm-hmm. soapbox here and feel free to mm-hmm. vehement, vehemently disagree with me if you want, Craig Hodges, because <laughs> I know you will. When we get to the political okay. aspect of this, I'm sure you will, uh, of the conversation. Okay. In my humble opinion, mm-hmm. the man who has never received the praise he deserves for the play that followed, the one that you just described, for the play in which Michael Jeffrey Jordan hit the shot to win the game and win the that series was Brad mm-hmm. Sellers on the inbound pass. That was a great inbound pass, and people never and, did the and, and and to have the presence of mind. The presence of mind. It's almost like you look at a quarterback who stays back in the pocket, looks out to his primary receiver, and then has to add live from that point. That is basically basically what Brad was able to do there. And, you know, man, you have to give him, you know, props on being able to, you know, keep his composure and get the ball to the man who needed it at that period of time, man. Absolutely. You're right, because uh, there's five – for uh, people who don't know, there's five seconds. Uh, he had five seconds. He's not like he's got all day to inbound the ball. And that... Exactly. And then you, then you had not only the five seconds of pressure, but the pressure of the moment. And it only being a moment left, <laughs> you know. Right. So there's a lot of things that you know those who are you know, fans and you know, and I think one of the things with these so last dance is giving some people some understanding of the pressures that goes that go into being a professional athlete on a lot of different levels, not just from somebody who, who people consider a bully. So when I look at some of the stuff, I laugh at it because it's so you know it, it's commercial, you know, and it's entertainment. So a lot of stuff that even though they're there for every moment of that year, okay, it, it, it's still entertaining, man. And yeah. it's one man's perspective. All right. Well, we'll get to all that. But the, the other thing I always thought about that play in Cleveland, which mm-hmm. is such a turning point for in, in the history of the Chicago Bulls, is Absolutely. my understanding you were, if uh, he could not get the ball to Jordan, he was supposed to pass the ball to you. Do I have that correct? Right. Exactly. So Michael was coming to the top towards the uh, sideline. And I was going to the baseline, to the three-point line. So if you look at when the ball came in bound, I was there to the corner. So, you know, and at that time, you know, I was one of the two or three, top two or three scorers on the team. So I was effective that night. I think I might have 15 or 16 points. So it was one of those things where you always have your secondary. But, you know, in that situation, Brad was able to keep his mind and had his target and, and saw where MJ was breaking to be able to get in the ball at, at perfect time and then, MJ being the way he is, he's going to create a way to make that bucket because one thing you can always say, man, he refused to lose, brother. Mm-hmm. He refused to lose. All right, let's talk about that. Uh, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. the bully thing, uh, and one mm-hmm. of the themes in the last show was that Michael Jordan was a bully uh, to his <clears throat> teammates. Did you see it that way? Well, I just look at it like this. Whenever you're in that, um, you got that pecking order. So it's like you're in the family. Big brother going to pick on little brother. And so it's one of those things, big money, pick on little money. <laughs> in that situation, that's basically what it is. So you have situations where guys who maybe not have the, uh, you know, the, the fortitude to say something back or they may think that MJ may get them cut, you know, or, or may get their playing time next. You know, so it, it's a thing that happens in sport. And I MJ ain't the only one that, 
that carried his weight, carried his, uh, you know, you have avowed guys who are in the league who are straight up jerks, and they'll tell you they're jerks because they have wealth and privilege. But, you know, to actually have witnessed some of it, I looked at it as being very childish for me, you know, when I would see him go at guys, you know, and, and sometimes when he would go at them, I'm going to say something about it. And there's a time when he went at Scott Williams and the way he went at him, I didn't like it. And I told him that ain't cool. So there's things that have gone down that ain't on that film. And part of the reason I know that I'm not in it is to speak to what I saw to it. And so it's not a, you know, intimidation factor. You know, it plays a role in it. And that intimidation can be formally known as bullying. But I just look at it as being just a childish cat that's got a lot of bread that can do what he wants to and not be held accountable in a lot of degrees. Well, I recall, uh, and I, th- I put this in the story I wrote about you, and I don't know where I picked this up. Maybe you told it to me or I read it. Uh, but there was a moment where uh, Michael Jordan was talking about garbage time. He's sick of being at the game with garbage time with garbage players, and I'm doing this off of memory, <laughs> Craig. And you said to right, him, right. I've been in this league longer than you have. I am not garbage. And, he, and, and now, yeah, oh, Hodge, I ain't talking about you. That's in Sam Smith's book. Sam, Sam, no. Yeah, man, see, and that's the thing that if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything. And I ain't going to fall for that garbage that you call your, you call, whatever you want to call somebody else. I'm not in that group. I'm not, whatever you want to say, brother, if they're not going to stand up for themselves, I'm going to stand up for me. And from my, you know, from my guesstimation, everybody in there is professional. And you ain't told, everyone has an off day at the workplace, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, whatever. Everybody has an off day. So we can ride people or we can come to a common, understanding that that brother got all day and I got to carry the load and we all can carry his load today because everybody's going to have to carry somebody's load on a given day in the team sport. And the thing that's really kind of upsetting to me is that how you can make this whole thing about one guy winning six championships, man. Come on, man. Come on. You didn't, you didn't play D. You didn't come on, dude. It ain't, you ain't do all of that by yourself. Come on. But the America, that's the American. That's how we want that. We want that. We want. Wow. We want. We want to be like Mike. <laughs> Simple. I I just read a a story uh, by the uh, the radical sports writer. I'm blanking as Dave Zarin is his name. He wrote it in the Nation. And he was talking about. It. Now I think yeah. He's, Dave is my Dave wrote the forward to my book. Yes. Yes, he did. That's wow. I should have remembered that. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a story, and it, he was saying that. How did he put it? That uh, you don't have to be a bully to win. Uh, now, my guess is he's just a disgruntled Knicks fan, but I'll put that aside. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking about it, Craig. I'm trying to think: were there any great champions who uh, were nice to their teammates? You know what I'm saying? You know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get it. I get. It. I think you know. I look at those Celtics teams that won everything. So you have five or six guys that's got seven or eight rings or whatever. That craziness is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, people would tell me, well, you know, the competition wasn't that. Okay, whatever. You're in the time that you're in. So in the time that they were in, they were fighting segregation. They were fighting all, other, all type of things. So when they came together as a collective, based on what I've been able to see, I've been able to talk to Bill Russell. I've had a chance to talk to the late uh, – uh, uh, Havlicek and, and you know so I've had a chance and not one time did I see any niche in the armor where any of them thought any of them was better than any of them even though they know they knew Bill Russell was the anchor they didn't look at 
they didn't look at uh, who we gonna say. Let's say Sam Jones is any less than Bill Russell. You know what I'm saying? So within the context of it, you know, you I look at systems. Systems win championships. So I go to a Bill Walsh system. You know, I go to you know Belichick system. Go to a Phil Jackson system. Go to those systems that win championships. And the overriding principle is the system more so than any personality. So when we draw the personality, Michael was blessed to play in triangle. Triangle could have been great for Clyde Drexler. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's just a matter of, you know, you're being blessed to play in a certain area given under certain principles and conditions. So when I look at the mentality and, you know, you want to go out and now this whole imagery of bullying I don't see that. I don't see a Larry Bird being a bully. I don't see a Magic Johnson being a bully. I see a Magic Johnson saying, "Damn man, if I'm gonna throw you the ball, catch the shit." You know what I'm saying? I can see that, but I don't see it being that it's a steady drum beat. That you know, when I look at the way they're portraying um, Scotty Burrell, you know what I'm saying, and all of that kind of madness. I'm like, okay, you could put. Why are you putting it in there to make the brother look weak? You know, is there something in that that you need to make happen like that? And that's at this point in your life, why do you need? more of anything <laughs> uh by the way you when you said systems win championship you were heading into a jerry right. kraus country i think his quote was organizations win championships and people have been two different things two different things talk about that two different things so you go to an organization like the new york knicks who ain't won nothing since Fieldman was there all right under different ownership that was one of the most, most antiseptic energies that i've ever been under in as far as Sport is concerned. So how can you win when you when I went there as D League coach with Phil and, and D Fish when D Fish was hired, and I felt the energy in the building. You can't win under this type of energy. So that whole Dolan energy is trickling down into analytics all the way to the point where I'm training uh, and and Tacumpo's brother Tenassis. I'm training him, and I have to do a triplicate report that he has to read. How many players want to do that? That's why Mon Shumpert and uh, J.R. Smith got out of there because it becomes a thing where it's not conducive to the game. So when I look at, you know, Jerry Krause and organizations, organizations, the, the organization puts people in place to create an environment that players can roll. Now when you bring in the coaching, the coaching within, say, okay, you put at the organization of Bulls, they put together the Berto Center. Cool, now we got a facility. But the organization came out the ball, so now you have to bring in a coach who puts in a system. And that's why I say it's, it's a big difference. You can have a great organization, everybody's taken care of, but you never win nothing because you bring in the wrong coach in the wrong system. So organizations, you have great organizations who never won. So it's the thing that you want to have, be able to have a great organization and a great system with great with a great coaching staff and I think that's the perfect storm of what Phil Jackson had during his championship run is that he the Bulls was an up and coming organization and then when hey when MJ got here they wanted to make it quality like throughout the league. So they were we were able to go from charter we were able to go from commercial to charter planes. So that type of thing started to happen. You know, so it's organizations who enhance the players' ability to go out and win but by no means is it an organization that's ever going to win a championship. It's the systems that they utilize. All right. Now, uh, when, when I was listening to you, I was thinking about a, 
uh, an old coach in Chicago, Sonny Cox, who coached for years at King High. Oh, yeah, Lennon. He just passed. Yes, yeah. he did. Uh, and uh, my yeah. condolences to his family. Great saxophone player, yeah. by the way, uh, Lennon yeah, Sonny yeah. Cox. And uh, so he used to tell me that uh, you got to have the horses, Ben. That's what he would tell me. You got to have the horses. It's about having the horses. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So when I think about what Sonny Cox says, and I, I listened to the, the way the last dance made it seem like the only way the Bulls would have won a championship is bringing in Phil Jackson as the coach. Do you believe in your mind that the Bulls could have won a championship uh, if they had kept Doug Collins there? Doug wasn't going to accept uh, Tech. So the only way they were going to win, a, the only way Phil has won championships is that he had Tech as his number one assistant, man. And, you know, Lord bless his soul also. He and Sonny Cox agree on one thing, that you have to have players. But if you can mesh those players into a system, you can have a system that can run. Literally, we could have won 10 straight championships in the city of Chicago from 91 to 2001. Everyone said. They could have kept going 20 years. And there wasn't nothing beef, but plugging in players. So I could imagine Derrick Rose coming into a triangle system that's been there for years and how he could have rolled him and him and Jimmy Butler and Noah. It would, I, you know, and that's the problem with me is that why haven't the Bulls maintained the triangle system within their organization and make whatever coach come in, follow that, follow what they did, show them the film work, make them, make them study, bring in Craig Hodges, but nobody wants to touch Craig Hodges because Craig Hodges is whatever. And I'm saying, Nobody has talked about my basketball intellect from Tex Winter. So I'm Tex Winter's number one student. And Phil Jackson tell you that. So when I look at the NBA right now and I see teams who are just need to get over the hump a little bit, man, you put them in triangle and you're going to be in, you're going to be in contention for a championship every year. Well, there's a, a new regime at the Chicago Bulls. So I'm urging them, uh, hire Craig Hodges. I've been pounding that drum for a while, Craig. Uh, and man, it, and you know, it's funny to me because it's like all of my teammates have been on the Bulls staff on some level. And I'm not going to beg anybody for anything. I love to give them a basketball. I know I could help. When I'm looking at Zach Levine and I'm looking at them guys, I'm like, Zach Levine would be cold. He'd be like Kobe in Triangle. He'd be like MJ in Triangle. It would be so much easier for him to operate and then become that, that staple that now we can build around. You know, what's the young brother that's the guard? With the, with the Kobe big White, Kobe White, like him, man, in triangle, it would be it would be unbelievable because now you have players that okay, we can run triangle for six minutes in each quarter, and then you have two guys that can go off the cuff a little bit, where you can run certain isolation stuff on in those two minute stretches that you need to get a bucket, and you know they can either get to the bucket, get you a jumper, or get to the free throw line. And you know they're capable of doing that with confidence. And that's the part where I feel like the triangle, there's no system better. Nobody can deny that there's any system better when you look at what Phil and Tech were able to do. All right, let's, uh, before we go uh, to why they won't hire Craig Hodges, and we'll get to that, mm -hmm. uh, let's go back mm -hmm. in time and ask you about uh, some of the incidents that were in the movie and get your thoughts or in the film uh, to get your yeah. thoughts about him. And the uh, number one that pops in my mind, uh, 1991, you were on the team that wins the championship. 
right. and uh, Isaiah and Bill Ambeer uh, walk off the court, lead the Pistons off the court. I have my right. theory about that. I would love to hear yours. Uh, what's your sense of what went down then? Oh, I loved it, man. You know, when they were walking past, dodging, I was laughing and pointing at them because it was funny to me. It's just, you know, the immaturity of it, the fact that they had kicked our butts for years and now we had to, we had got, got them back and the transition was happening. We knew that <clears throat> after that game, we had basically won a championship and we were still in a championship spirit among us. So when they walked out, it was like, man, we, we gave them something that they never were able to accept from a sportsman end, but they understood. And then I saw where Isaiah showed in fact of how, you know, when they beat Boston to go to the championship, Boston walked off the court early and he shot McHale on the way out and that kind of thing. I get that. You know, you want the other team to go and celebrate and you want to be part of the celebration, but the game is a game. It doesn't end to zeros on the clock. And, you know, be a man. So all of it is, you know, for me it was, it was funny and, and immature on their on they behalf. Well, my advice, uh, my takeaway uh, to Isaiah Thomas is you shouldn't have listened to Lambeer. That's what you get from listening. <laughs> and you know, the part, and the part for me is that being from Chicago, being from Chicago, you almost should have you almost should have stayed in the celebration knowing how long it was for us to get there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And really congratulated everybody on a righteous level. I think the the love of the city of Chicago would would still be a lot more in your favor as opposed to, you know, you still be being considered a bad boy. Absolutely. By the way, let's just talk about that briefly. Uh, you're from the South suburbs. You went to Richie's, right. Chicago Heights. Mm -hmm. uh, were you a Bulls fan growing up? Absolutely. I, you know, Norm Van Leer, one of the first basketball clinics I went to was at Rich South High School with Bobby Weiss and Jerry Sloan. And it was crazy. I had a chance when I was playing in the league. Uh, my aunt sent me the picture when we were getting ready to play Utah. And I was able to show Jerry the picture that he and I had taken. I told him how much that inspired me to go back and just work on, you know, just being able to get to a level where maybe one day I could be standing somewhere and people taking pictures with me as a professional. So those type of things, man, I've always been a Bulls fan, you know, going back to the Tom Bullwinkle and Bob Boozer and, Jimmy Washington and um, uh, Wally Jones, all of them guys, man. I, and my uncle was, uh, you know, a uh, player back in them days. So he had a chance to play against some guys in the summer. So it was, um, I was blessed, man, to be able to see basketball up close and personal and being taught how to watch the game in a, in a critical manner in order for your development to get there. Yeah, and before I go further, let me just say one more thing. I implore the Bulls. Retire number two. Norm Van Leer's numbers got to go on the rafters. If there's any meaning to somebody who gave his his life, yeah. his heart, and his soul to the Chicago Bulls, Craig Hodges, it was Norm Van Leer. I just have to say, you mentioned his name. I just have to say that. And you know the thing about that, and um, you know, and I was kind of disheartened when uh, you know I loved Jabari when he came in, but when they gave him number two, I started calling everybody I knew to get in touch with him. And say, man, don't put on Norm's jersey, man. It means too much to people who know what it meant to Norm and that his jersey, that was one of the things that he was, you know, asking Krause and the management for the last years when, you know, when things were going down was, to, why isn't my jersey retired? Why isn't my jersey up in the rafters? And, you know, part of Norm's issues, <clears throat> or part of what the issues when we talk about me getting employed is that, you know, Norm had an independent spirit in that 
when he see things that, that weren't correct, he was going to speak on it. And, you know, Norm would fight you. <laughs> Norm would fight you, man. So he was he had a rebellious spirit that oftentimes was misunderstood. Yeah. Well, I didn't misunderstand it. I love the man dearly. Exactly, man. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, Norman Lear is a pre, my, my second favorite bull. All right, now let's move on and talk about Jerry mm-hmm. Krause. You've mentioned him a couple times. Uh, he's right. set up as the villain uh, in this TV show, <laughs> in this TV documentary. Right. Do you think that's uh, a justifiable role for him? Do you See, think once that's again, we're in, we're in this commercial stuff, man, and dead man tell no tale. So I feel bad about it. I feel bad that the man can't defend himself. So from my standpoint, it's like this, Jerry Krause, Jerry Krause put our team together. We all got there because that brother was there, at least as far as I'm concerned. I got there because of him. Now, at the same time, everybody has human frailties, and when you're in that team environment, you're going to have sticklers, you're going to have people who are going to be jabbing you and all of that. And if, you're, if your um, mannerisms are such that it's going to be jokeable, then somebody who has their own insecurities are going to point out yours. So a lot of that was what, you, what we found is that, you know, Scotty, Horace, they would all jab at him. And it became a running joke. And that sometimes it would get to a point where it became overbearing. But we're men, you know, and, and people have to stand up for themselves. Like Jerry would stand up for himself and tell them whatever, you know. But when I see the way that it's being portrayed where MJ and Jerry Reinsdorf can say the things that they say like it was all Jerry Krause is doing, that's kind of hard to, for me to say how I don't know many situations where a general manager can go tell a coach that you're not going to bring them back, even even if you're already going up, unless it's already been said from the ownership that you have the right and authority to, to pursue that lane. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he was the uh, the front man, and uh, he was he's there to take the abuse. And you're and it's double now. He's not around, so it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> let's blame it on the guy who's not here to defend himself. I can't see your man, you know. So it is what it is, man. And like I said once again, that's Michael's perspective, man. It's it's his documentary. That's why I'm doing mine too. I have a documentary and, and feature film coming out soon, so. Keep out. I keep it posted. All right. Well, uh, let's discuss what will be in that documentary. Uh, I can almost guarantee you. You probably um, uh, let's. We'll be talking in that documentary about what went happen, what happened, what went down. I think it was November of '91. I'm doing this off of memory, Craig. So November '91, the Bulls had just won the championship, uh, and they're invited. The team is invited to the White House to meet then President George Bush. And I think everything in your life pivoted at that moment. Talk about what, what and you, happened. Yeah, for me, it was one of those things where I had written letters to every congressperson uh, all the way through college. So it was me writing a letter to the president the night before I was playing ping pong when I, you know, and it came to me, man, you got to write a letter. And my buddy who I'm playing with, man, you sure you want to write a letter to the president? I'm like, I got to do it because these are things that was done all along in my life. And, and this is, this is, her proper ascension of what I've been doing all along. So, um, and likewise, I wanted to make sure that I went in culturally correct. And as, in my mindset, and from the African perspective and the African historical perspective, I went to Dashiki. And happened to be able to give the president um, a message from those who couldn't give a message. And that was the premise of it. It wasn't to disrespect on any level. I had been wearing the Dashiki all throughout the playoffs. So, the fact I had on the dashiki wasn't anything different. 
It was the fact that now we were on the international stage where more people would ask why I wasn't in a suit and tie. And I explained to them, I haven't been in a suit and tie since we lost against Detroit. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to go the way that we need to go. So, you know, my, I went from being the eighth player on the team in minutes played that year to number 12 on the team on the minutes played the next year. And I was out of the league in 1992, after 1992 season. So it was one of those things where not, not looking at it from a perspective of what was going to, the repercussions coming from going to the White House, giving President a letter. I never thought about that. I felt like I had, I had done enough in the league from a 10 year of service, you know, two world championships, three consecutive three point titles at the time. How could I not be able to get a job? I'm knowing that, you know, the political ramifications is something totally different. Uh, not only uh, were you uh, dropped by the Bulls and couldn't get a, a tryout or an offer from any other team uh, in the NBA, but they would not let you come back to, or initially, they would not let you come back to defend your three-point uh, shooting uh, title. You were the two-time if I got this correct, yeah, you'd won two in a row. So you were you no, really, I won three in a row. You would have I won three in a row at that time. I was going for yeah. my fourth. Right. All right, going for a fourth, which nobody has ever done. Uh, so right. t- talk about that a little bit. And, you know, that was the part that, you know, a lot of – I'm out of the league, and, and, you know, it gets about January, right before they're getting ready to start naming people. And people are saying, you know, had a lot of people from the community literally write letters to the league and, on my behalf to give me a chance to come and shoot and defend my title, you know, but the hardest thing for me was to, how could I get my mindset into arena situation where I hadn't played in the arena, you know, for 12 months. So it was a thing where I'm having to get back into shooting at Rich East high school and the like getting, trying to get ready for the competition. It wasn't really realistic, but I had a chance to get in and compete, man. So it all ended up being, being a cool situation, but, for me, I would have felt a lot better had I been with somebody playing and having the momentum of the team looking forward to you going and competing and all the things that had happened the years before. So going in without a team, going in under the pressures of knowing of all the political stuff that I went on and, and the innuendo that you're not playing because you're a militant and all this garbage, you know, so it was a, it was a different situation, a different challenge, and I did my best. I came in fourth, I believe. Do you think that there'd be more tolerance uh, to to you and your political views or uh, your worldview today than there was back in 1992? No doubt about it. You know, even to the point where we're doing this interview, man. You know what I mean? That that the the last dance has putting a little more putting more light on me from the standpoint that I'm not in it. So people are have been questioning that. People have been Interviewing me, I've had more interviews in the last three weeks, man, than I've had probably in almost half of my career, man. So it's one of those things where, you know, light has been shown on historical things that have never, questions that have never been given solutions to. And those are some of the questions that I had when, in, in the letter that I wrote to the president, that, you know, these issues have been in the forefront of American history. And at which point in time is it going to be a generation that actually chooses to take the time to solve them. And I would hope that in this generation, so when I look at what Alan Kaepernick was able to do and as far as drumming up support through social media, it would have been lovely for myself and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf to have social media at that time to be able to give our side of the story. And I think that's the biggest thing that it does is it gives your side of the story to be able to counter whatever is being said against you 
or, or you know, that now somebody can actually take a, a, a calm view and look at both sides of the story as opposed to it being media-driven from one side. Well, one of the issues uh, that the documentary uh, did explore uh, to a limited degree was Michael Jordan's own, own attitudes toward politics and the role he played. Uh, right. And uh, he was, I guess, if you look at it extremes, uh, there would be you on on the same team. Think about this, Craig. You're on the one, mm -hmm. one hand delivering a letter uh, to President Bush on behalf of black America and Native Americans mm -hmm. as well, uh, mm -hmm. talking about a national program to address right. the inequities that we're facing. And then on the other hand, uh, Michael Jordan would not endorse Harvey Gantt for Senate uh, in North Carolina, a, ma a very mainstream right. Democrat, I might add. Folks, this is way going back to 1990. Harvey Gantt was a very mainstream Democrat. Right. We're not right. talking about a Ben Jarofsky extremist here, okay? A Bernie Sanders <laughs> type. We're talking mainstream, all right? So, right, right. Uh, he would, there you guys are on the same team. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you sit in judgment of Michael Jordan? Were you critical of Jordan at the time? Were you trying to push him to go? Uh, to be more outspoken. Nah. One of the things for me, man, is that I'll be, I'm excited about reading. So if I read some information, I'm going to share it with you. If you're on my team, I'm going to share it with you. And when I looked at that situation with MJ and, and the whole thing during during the period of time, it wasn't really no big talk when I blushed about him doing or not doing it. It came out after the fact that, you know, he said Republicans by Jim Shearer. Even to this point, this is what I was thinking the other day. Had he not said anything about Republicans buying gym shoes and just went ahead and did what his mother asked him to do was endorse the candidate. Would those people who were Republicans stop buying gym shoes? I don't think so. I don't think anybody who was going to buy gym shoes is going to buy gym shoes anyway, who, regardless of who Michael endorsed. The thing that was eye-opening and kind of heart-wrenching for me is that when your mama tell you to do something, you don't do it. That's, that's letting us know a little bit about who you are. By the way, just uh, I had to say this. Uh, Pete Rose, the baseball player, said something only in reverse. I, I remember this, Craig. Uh, Pete Rose, you, you know, you remember Pete Rose, right? Uh, played for the Cincinnati Reds. Johnny Bench wanted him to show up at a, I think it was a rally where mm -hmm. for uh, some Republican, Johnny Bench was a Republican. And I think Pete Rose said, no, Democrats buy spikes too, or something like that. So <laughs> right. the flip flop of that one, but. Uh, yeah, he uh, his mom asked him to support Harvey. Uh, exactly, man. Yeah. Man, come on, come on. That, that's my whole thing, man. If if your mom says, "Ben, I need you to endorse Ronald Reagan," <laughs> <laughs> not gonna happen, Craig. <laughs> you feel me, man? Now you I've been like, "Oh, mom," but man, that's like me taking poison. <laughs> hey, you gonna take this one for the team, son? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And now me, it's like me. They offered me when I was playing for the Bulls. Somebody came to me and they wanted me to run for a Republican Party in the far south suburbs. Okay? And I'm thinking, soon as they asked me, all I could remember was my granddaddy and the beatings that I used to get whoopings with his leather belt. <laughs> and me going to him saying, you know what, Grandpa, I'm getting ready to run for office. Oh, that's good, boy. What? What district? No, I'm, uh, I'm going to be a Republican in the fight. What? Come <laughs> man, no, no, that ain't happening, man. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, by the way, uh, Craig comes from a, a legacy of uh, politics. His father was the mayor of Fort Heights, so uh, it's not that uh, outrageous to think he would run for office. By the way, I just have to correct something before we go any further. My mom, yeah. may she rest in peace, was a lifelong Democrat. Craig, she hated Ronald Reagan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I just have to put that up. That was just a hypothetical, okay? And, and, and you know, and you know, Mom looking down on me, she's smiling too. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, get that one clarified. You're right. Take care of that real quick. That was just an analogy of uh, a yeah. partial. Right? It was, it was yeah. a hypothetical that he was thrown out there. Right. Let's move right. on from that one. Uh, good God, my mom. Just the thought of those words uh, coming out. Out of, out of her mouth. Uh, all right. So, uh, how long do you think you would have played had they not kicked you out of the league? Uh, I had another five innings. Man. I could have went to play seven easy, and that's just knowing how to play. Yeah, my next when I my plan was this: that when I when we won our second championship and I was unrestricted free agent, my next season I was going to not pass the ball. I was going to just shoot. I wasn't going to do all of this role playing. And I did all of that. I played my role. I won championships. I won three-point championships. Now I'm going to go play like I play in the summertime free, just like MJ played, just like Steph Curry played, just like Isaiah played, just like Magic played. I played with cuffs on trying to make sure that, even to this point, when I look at MJ Carl Scott, he's selfish. And I think of how selfish that is because, in fact, we all, we all gave passes to him that we didn't have to pass to him, that he didn't pass to us. There was times when he was going on the roll and we kept giving him the pill, but let Scotty go on the roll and see what he get, keep feeding Scotty so he could get pitched. You know what I'm saying, man? That it's opportunities that we afforded Michael Jordan that he didn't afford the rest of his squad. So this thing when he came out and said, I know that people ain't going to like this because of this and that, then why did you do it? Why did you do it? So that's my thing, man. Why, why now? And what is the purpose of it all, dude? Well, you know, let's just look at how Michael Jordan's life has changed. Just think about this, Craig. I'm just listening to what you mm -hmm. said, and it just popped in my head. Mm -hmm. Michael Jeffrey mm -hmm. Jordan is not a basketball player right now. He's the owner of a team. Yep. So that's his perspective. He would want mm -hmm. the player to play. The player's under contract to him. He has his perspective. You're still thinking back in the days when you're the uh, the player rep. Weren't you the player Absolutely. rep? Absolutely. Okay. That's... Always will be a player rep. <laughs> <laughs> you got to drop that. You know? Drop the player rep nah, thing man. and maybe the Bulls will hire you. No, I'm just. No, nah, man. I'm still a player rep, man. Bill Walton taught me that in my rookie year, man. I never thought, I never forgot about it. What did he say? He said, man, as long as you live. You are with the players. You're not with management. So even if you become a coach on the other side or you become executive, always be on the side of the players because this is a league that is made by the players and not by the owners. Yeah. And I never forgot that. And so when I look when MJ became an owner and, and tried to push back on some of the things that we had gained while you were a player, how do we do that? I don't see that. I don't see how you could, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and a couple other things that uh, pop into my mind that, uh, just follow me on this, the notion that Scottie Pippen uh, should not have taken, should not have done the, uh, had the operation or the surgery or whatever at the in the season is, 
counter to the prevailing attitude today. Think about this, Craig. We hear about load management today. Today in the NBA. You feel me? Yeah. So that, like that's what have been apl- applauded in today's oh shrewd move by the Bulls, you know what I'm what saying? What about wait? What about how they controlled his comeback when he got hurt? Oh, you mean remember when Michael MJ, remember? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know I mean? <laughs> so, so, so were you were you being selfish with your teammates, and now we're controlling your time, and now we don't want to bring you back too fast, but you could have came back at that point in time when we don't want to bring you back too fast. So. Man, it's been throughout. Look at what happened with Derrick Rose. That was a travesty how that happened. How he didn't, he was ready to play, but he wasn't ready to play, but he was ready to play. And then all of the stuff going on with the management and his agency, that was ugly, man. It took away uh, a, a good year of his career, man. I felt it might have been something great. But it is what it is, man. It happened. Yeah. And the other thing that just popped in mind, get uh, share this thought with you. All mm-hmm. the criticism dumped on Jerry Krause because he was wooing Tony Kukoc, trying to bring Tony mm-hmm. Kukoc to the team. Isn't that mm-hmm. where we are in the NBA now? Isn't that what players do? Yeah. Player- on, man. And that, and... Go ahead. No, I'm just fit. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Woo other players to their team? Isn't that the trend in the NBA? Was Jerry Krause just ahead of his time? That was part of it. Jerry had did a lot of scouting overseas before a lot of teams even thought about it. So he had been sending texts over there along with some other people years earlier. So they had been watching Tony for years, man. It wasn't no just right now fine. So he had put his claws into Tony early, and, and he had let Jerry know that. So they were able to, you know, bring him over here. So it's one of those things where now the game, especially the game is like that now, where you have players wanting to play with each other and, because they played AAU together and they won an AAU together, so they think they'll be able to win the league together. And now, it's, and that's the, the measure of power that the ownership has allowed so that the players won't ask for true ownership. Uh, Craig, I just want to make okay, one thing clear. You were not interviewed mm-hmm. for this documentary? Is that correct? Not, nope. And I'm glad I wasn't. Why do you say that? Because man, there's a certain separation that's needed today, and I don't. I'm glad you ain't making me a part of that garbage. Right? If I, I don't even want my face to be associated on that side of it. So a lot of these guys, like Horace, I felt like was blindsided with some of the way that it turned out because you don't have editorial control. So for me, I'm so happy that I'm not in it, and that and this is so you show you how crazy thing is. Um, a group out of Britain purchased the, the rights to my book and movie almost two years ago. So we've been in the process of working on documentary and the script and all of that for over a year, not even knowing this thing was coming out. So now this is coming out and it's telling so much of the reality of why my story is so important because the reality of why Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan was told in the first, first one or two uh, scenes where they were talking about David Falk and how he was making Michael Jordan into an individual athlete in a team sport. So I want to be like Mike. That whole imagery was created in the laboratory. So it's a Frankenstein monster, you know, when you look at it marketing-wise compared to who the guy really, who, who really is, you know, the reality of it. The reality is what it is, man. And, you know, the... the Marketing arm is a whole imaginary process to get you to spend money. All right. Now, uh, I think this is a, a good point to uh, make a little shift uh, to politics and mm-hmm. close down the interview. 
Uh, when I first met Craig Hodges, it was in, I th want to say, no late November, early December of 2016. As I said, I was writing an article about his mm -hmm. book and his life. And uh, it was right after Donald Trump was elected. And we mm -hmm. immediately got into a political discussion. And I learned something about Craig Hodges. The man is stubborn. He's going to stick to his point of view, even if he's clearly <laughs> wrong, which he was. And that, okay. Uh, and Craig Hodges has learned something about me. I never forget an argument. So here we are, th three years later, I want to say. So I'm ready for that concession, uh, Craig, where you say, Ben. You know, wasn't I think it was your aunt's house that we were sitting in. Uh, but right. yeah, Ben, I have to <laughs> confess, you were right and I was wrong about that discussion about Donald Trump's impact on America. Uh, so uh, are you ready to say that, Craig, or are you still going to stick to your point of view? Let's go back. Let's go back. Give me the, give me the points of the discussion so I can, I can actually give my apology and proper manner. <laughs> Actually, I know I'm not going to get an apology or a concession, but uh, the point <laughs> of view was that there was really fundamentally no difference between Donald John Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, in terms of black voters. I think that was the g general gist of the conversation. So you were trying to explain why uh, lower vote, not voting at all was not as uh, bad as I was saying. I, I was I was really going on my high horse about uh, the low turnout, not just among uh, black voters, by the way, but uh, right. my lefty brothers and sisters in general uh, sat that right. one out. Uh, a lot of Bernie supporters. And why, though? Why did they set it out? Because they did Bernie wrong. See, the whole thing is crooked, man. Yeah, they <laughs> the did. whole thing is crooked. So now, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. right? Brother. <laughs> I, I told you, man. I'm still where I'm at. Okay. I'm still where I'm at, man. I, I can't, man, I tell you. And that's what's so cool is that, you know, it's a spiritual and a physical, man. All that's physical. And we're on the spiritual incline right now. So that this political stuff, so you look at, you know, what's so amazing to me is that we can give out trillions of dollars right now. We could have did that 20 years ago. Yes. Instead of stealing it from the people. And now, now, now we we giving people twelve hundred dollars, two thousand uh, dollars. Okay, what are you telling us? Now my thing is to people who are listening that study, research, look into things. Make sure you're drinking plenty of water. Make sure that you come out with a plan because I look at you know the way America is now in the world really is that it's almost back to the stagecoach day that you and your family is your stagecoach. And how are y'all gonna come out of this? Are you come out? Are you gonna come out? better research so that now you can take on some entrepreneurial mindset and be, be able to create a home-based business? Are you going to be able to teach your children from home? Or are you going to be able to say, look here, children, we are going to create this home-based business and we're going to create a family business and you're going to, we're going to teach you how to run the business from the crib and we're going to do homeschooling on that matter. So this thing is almost in the hands of the people, for real, on how you want your life to be determined going forward. And when you look at this whole thing that how concerned are we really with the health of the people when we may have knew about it in November? We may have now. We don't know when we knew about it. And now it becomes a thing where we're letting you, man, what do you believe? What to believe? How can me, me as an African-American studier and researcher, say, okay, 
black people are dying more than anybody else from this, right? What about Tuskegee? What about the Native American and the smallpox and the blankets? So now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, y'all go back out here real quick. We need to open it back up real quick. Man, we don't even know why we closed it. We don't know what's going on on here. But I know that it's, a, it's hurting my community more than anybody else. And it doesn't seem to, we say, it's all because of the underlying issues. Hmm. Could it have been that the underlying issues go back to the original, what do you call it, the original uh, miscue of this country, slavery? Could the underlying issues go back to that point? So I, I, I related to my son like this. I say, man, look here. America's a, a, a 99-story building that we, when we want to get to the issues, we always go to the first floor where you walk in, but we don't never look in the foundation in the basement. And black people are the basement in America that then nobody wants to get to the issues to bring us up to the 99th floor to negotiate our issues. And that 99th floor would be the world. So let us bring our light to the world. And we ain't never did that, man. We ain't never did that. So even under this condition, how many people on the planet are dying like black people right now? And I'm talking about all over the globe, Africa, Zimbabwe especially. You know what I'm saying? The crushing sanctions that have hurt that nation so much to the point where, man, what are we trying to do? And that was under Bill. That was under Hillary's husband, <laughs> Bill, Bill, yeah. Bill. Right? You know, so Hillary's cool, right? Yeah. Hillary cool. Hillary cool. Hillary Hillary is cool because that's the same old game. See, the whole game has been this, man. The exploitation of black and brown people the globe over because of natural resources that are under their feet have been advantageous for the Western nations who are mainly European nations. So this whole Ukrainian thing for me is that's where the, the original Europeans came from, that area of the planet. You know what I'm saying? And then coming from that have decimated black, brown, red, and yellow people all over the globe under the name of what? Democracy. Demon gone crazy. Demon crazy. Well, <laughs> I, I still say we've been better off with Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, but this is pretty much the same argument that took place. And you know what? I, when I'm listening to you, Craig, I just thought I had a flashback to something that wasn't in the documentary because they didn't interview mm -hmm. you. And I w now I wish they had interviewed you for this point. And <laughs> I just, when you, when you were talking, I had this flashback. In 1991, people don't know this, 1991, I, and I'm, I'm about. I'm going to set this up, and I'm going to just admit up front that I have mixed feelings about this, because I'm what? a lifelong Chicago Bulls fan. I'm a little older mm -hmm. than you, Craig, but I, they came into existence uh, when I was in sixth grade. So my whole yep. life, I've been a Bulls fan. I mm -hmm. Jerry Colangelo was on that squad. He, he was the assistant coach. So mm -hmm. um, here, my beloved Bulls had finally, after blowing it to the Lakers and Will Chamberlain, after blowing it to uh, Al Adel's Golden State Warriors, State. after yep. blowing it to Bill Walton's Portland Trailblazers, after losing to so many Milwaukee Bucks teams with Craig Hodges yeah. and Terry Cummings from Chicago playing for my the Bucks, after all this, yeah. finally my beloved Bulls are in the championship. And Craig Hodges goes up to Michael Jeffrey Jordan and says, look, okay, let's, boycott. Let's, bo 
<laughs> I would have been if you got. Let's boycott. We got him, man. This is called leverage, MJ. This is this is leverage, man. The, Come on, man. We, we, hey, man, we gonna have a better shot, right, brother? Let's do it now, man. Come on, man. No, that's too extreme, hot. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's so funny is that you bring that up is that I was blessed for uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, to have a, a conference call with uh, Don Carlos, my hero, man. Mm-hmm. And to hear him, and one of the questions I asked him about the coming about of the whole Olympic protest, and he was like, it was amazing of, of how many athletes voted for it. But once a couple of weeks before it, they started getting letters from family members and people saying how important for us to them that they go and all of that. So I can see how that could uh, <laughs> could have you kind of sick up when you say, no, man, we didn't change this part on the boy. Not now. Not now. I would have said, Craig, I'm with you 100%, but – these are my bulls. Finally, right. next year, do the boycott. Anyway, exactly. Yeah, uh, and you asked Magic as well, right? Magic Johnson, because yeah, you were playing the Lakers. Exactly. And, and my thing was 21 of the 24 athletes were black, so we could maybe get some concessions from the owners like Jerry West and Elgin Baylor did during the 1963 uh, All-Star game down in uh, New Orleans, I believe it was, where they weren't going to let the players have the same housing. So that's of the uh, foundation of the union, you know, so there had been precedent set, but it was just a matter of making a choice to do something about it. And my brother thought I was a bit too extreme, but at the same time, I look at the pecking order where I was at. Maybe if I'd have been, you know, a little bit higher on the pecking order and as far as uh, celebrity appeal in the NBA or whatever, they might have thought about it. But it was just a cursory view from this standpoint that it's coming from high. So take it for what it is. <laughs> Well, it, it, it is a, um, a mind-blowing proposition, and I really think that now that I'm thinking about it, it would have re- been a great setup. You know how in the documentary uh, they, somebody says something and then they, they, have, they show the tablet to Jordan and he watches and reacts? Exactly, exactly. Can, can you imagine if, so you're telling that story. So I went up to Jordan and I said, MJ, this is our chance to take the stand and really use our mm-hmm. leverage. Uh, and he goes, not now, Hodge. And then they cut to Jordan. What would he, what would what he, he say? What would he say? You know, yeah, man. What, what, what would be, you know, what would be your position on it? You know, and I understand, you know, once again, what you've studied, what you're passionate about means a lot. And you're going to act on those. And, and that one of the things is that you know, that's been my passion, man, since I was a little boy, man, seeing, you know, seeing people have justice, seeing people being equal, that, you know, I I want everybody to have an opportunity. Why not? We're getting the same, we we breathing the same air, so something is the same, you know what I'm saying? So why shouldn't human rights on an equality level truly be that, as opposed to it being some type of contrived thing that only you know about and secret meetings and then come out in public is something totally different. So my thing, man, is that, you know, the human family is a human family. And right now at this point in time, we need to see things correctly and, and be about, you know, helping humanity raise up as opposed to divide and go downward. All right. That's about a, a good a spot to end this as any, cause that's a, a good point to uh, end it on. Craig Hodges, uh, stay safe, stay sound. Best of luck to you. Appreciate- 
and everything you do and we'll get you back on the show straight up political talk some basketball talk and i'll see if i can uh convince you that uh, i was right and you were wrong in 2016. <laughs> hi man appreciate you today family listeners y'all be safe and uh make sure you take care of one another and be peaceful very good that's the great craig hodges i'm ben Jarofsky. take care everybody